Thank you, Chad and Molly, for that song. It's always good to hear Spanish again. And uh, I do remember that man's name in our hymn book down there. Uh, I've heard quite a few songs that we enjoyed and sang together. It's a good reminder. So, it feels like what I want to share tonight is a little bit of an outlier in what we've been sharing. And one of the reasons of that is because the church that Jesus came to purchase to himself is probably one of the most precious things and the most, uh, the greatest focus that he has in all of his work on earth. So salvation is important, but the goal of salvation is to bring people into a body. And the goal of this body is to, to express Christ here on this earth in a way that none of us could by ourselves. Thank you. And so it's a very important subject. And, uh, Back in Virginia, I enjoy, among some other things, I enjoy beekeeping. And uh, I got into this several years ago and started with two and expanded to four and then from four to 12. And then last fall, I lost most of them and started back this spring with maybe one or two that were still surviving, trying to build them back up. Uh, poor management, of course, but we're, we're trying to learn some things. I was interested to see here, between here and Gerald's place, that there's a couple of spots that somebody set out some beehives down this side of the road and up on this side of the road, just some pallets of hives to take advantage of the bloom going on right now. It's probably the greatest honey flow that you'll get the whole year is right now where things are green and the rains are there. Um, but this morning I was sitting in Gerald's basement studying and I noticed a funny noise outside. I went outside to look and uh, there were about 30 or 40 honeybees buzzing around the back deck up on top and down underneath, and they were poking around the corners and the nooks and crannies and, and just zooming all over the place. And I immediately suspected what they were doing. Uh, every year, if a hive is healthy and the population is high, their, their goal as a hive is to swarm. And it's quite a process that they go through. When, uh, when the space gets limited, when they get a certain amount of supplies stocked up, the workers start slimming down their queen. They take away her food, stop feeding her. She loses weight, probably loses about 25% of her weight. Um, they start stocking up on honey themselves. The, the worker bees load up. They actually start raising more queens. They build a special little queen cup, and they transfer some of the queen's eggs into that cup. And by feeding it a different kind of food, it'll make a new queen to replace the one that's going to fly away. And when the day is right, about half the bees will crawl out of the hive along with the queen and all take flight and go buzzing off much to the dismay of the beekeeper and leave and go land in a tree somewhere in a cluster. And the queen is in there and all the other bees come and land on top there and, and they hang there on this thing. And I've, I've never gotten to see it at home, but I sure came close to seeing it today. And uh, when they're landed, they're clustering on a branch somewhere there's a super interesting process that starts happening. It's the process of how bees make decisions together. And so when they're landed there, they're all keeping the queen warm and they're all feeding her out of their own supplies they've got. They're living on that, they're, you know. And then they send scouts out in different directions and they're all out there scouting for a good place to live. And so they'll go around and poke around little nooks and crannies and try to find a hole and explore it. If they find a place that might be suitable, they'll go inside the hole, they'll sort of walk around it and measure how big it is. They'll go inside and walk this way and walk this way and spend about five minutes or 15 minutes inside, come out, fly around a little bit, check out the outside, go back in. And then they'll fly back to the cluster, land on the surface, and do this little dance on top of all the other bees to, to communicate something to the rest of them. And by doing that dance, they're communicating three things. They're communicating how far it is to the place that they found. They're communicating which direction it is in relation to the sun. And beekeepers that study it can look at the dance they make and say, uh-huh, they're pointing to a place about 600 yards away to the south-southwest based on the sun's position. So that the next bee can go check it out himself. And the third thing that they're communicating is how good of a site it is. They have this criteria they use to say, is this excellent? Is this Musselmanus? Is it uh, sort of an average place? If, if they're excited about it, they'll do an excited dance, energetic. If they're not, they sort of do a little dance and communicate the other two things. And 
And then other bees will go check it out. They'll follow his directions, her directions, go out there, find the same spot, and come back and give their report. At the same time, there might be scouts coming in from other directions giving their report. And so this whole colony has to start thinking, okay, this one or this one or that one. And uh, so when I was outside today, I started noticing they were not poking around the cracks of the, the deck as much as this barrel that was over in the corner beside the house with a little hole in the middle exactly the right size, exactly the right positions, pointing to the south, just what they like, about an inch and a half or two inches in diameter, perfect size. The only problem was it's a little bit big. It's put a 50-gallon barrel. They would rather have something from about 5 to 20 gallons. That's their optimum size. It gets much bigger. It's too big. It gets too small. They won't be able to store up enough honey to make it. And so all day I watched them just to see what they would do. That's why I had a hard time getting done studying today. And they would come back. And at one time, around lunchtime, I saw quite a few there. And they were doing the dance right outside the hole. Another bee would land and I could see him doing this dance up against this bee and trying to communicate his excitement. But then later off, it sort of, it sort of died off in the afternoon. None came back. So they might have found a better spot. But they might be back tomorrow. I don't know what Gerald's would do if a, a bee swarm moved in right there. It'd be sort of a problem for them, but I, I sure hope they do because I want to see it. <laughs> I want to see it happen. The, uh, the one interesting thing about that is the original person that found the person, B, that found the site and came back and did his dance, he'll do it for a while, but then he'll leave it to others. He'll stop. She'll stop after a while and let the other ones come and do it. And so it's, it's like they, they give up on insisting on their preference. They, they share accurately what they found, but they're going to let other people keep on with it if they find it to be suitable like they found to be suitable. And eventually, when they're all in agreement, they all take off together, all fly to the one they chose, and all crawl in and set up housekeeping, and that's where they go. And the whole reason for the swarm is to replicate the colonies. It's not enough just to hatch more baby bees. What they want to do, what they need to do, is, is start new colonies and get more colonies out there to spread them around. And, uh, and to do it, it's a tremendous display of unity and decision-making and working together with a single-minded purpose to get this done. It's an amazing thing. Not all swarms survive. Maybe one or two out of ten make it through the winter because there's so many things that can go wrong. And this rain will stop. The flowers will die. There won't be honey for the rest of the summer. And if they have enough, they'll make it. If they don't, they'll starve this winter. And, they'll... and if they make it, they'll send out a swarm or two next spring. Same thing. All over again. Sometimes I wonder... If God planned the honeybee swarm as an example to the church, that uh, as important as individual salvation is, we need more than the vision for individual salvation. We need a vision for churches to be planted and transplanted because uh, th this blueprint for the church needs to be planted in places that have never been seen before because it's the glory of God and the symbolism of this into a new community that where seekers may never have an opportunity except a church arrives, except believers come. And as beautiful as a honeybee swarm might be to those that enjoy seeing such things, the transplant of a church is even more beautiful when people are willing to take up root, go somewhere, uh, plug in, demonstrate in a new community what Jesus meant when he taught about what his body would look like and how it should work. The only unfortunate thing is that the elements required to make it work are not caught by instinct. They must be applied by choice. And I know who I'm talking to tonight. You're a church plant. You've been here not very long. I don't know all of your stories, your backgrounds, but um, I do know that working together is hard work. Thinking together takes humility. Taking the many and making one body is, is quite a process. And it takes a challenging level of blending together. I'd like to discuss tonight several things we must be able to overcome and blend together if we are hopeful in planting a church and, and having a church. It, it applies to old churches as well as young churches. But I think it would do well for us to at least start by thinking of Jesus' vision for the church. I'd like to read a few verses in John 17, verse 20. And think about 
what value Jesus places on it and what's at stake to see it succeed or fail. The church is the only reward that Christ gets from his suffering. It's his only inheritance. And if he wouldn't get this, I don't know if there's anything else, but this is his inheritance. The church is his body, his presence on the earth. Hopefully we can represent him well. It's the portrait of Christ that the world sees. So all these things are, are why the church is important. But Jesus prayed for it in John 17, verse 20. This is where we come in. Neither pray I, Jesus said, for these alone, but for them also which shall believe on me through their word, that they may all may be one as thou, Father, art in me and I in thee, that they also may be one in us, that the world may believe that thou hast sent me. And the glory which thou gavest me, I have given them, that they may be one, even as we are one. I in them, and thou in me, that they may be made perfect in one, and that the world may know that thou hast sent me, and hast loved them as thou hast loved me. Beautiful prayer. Many things we could learn from there and think about. He's, he's praying for some very specific things, that the glory that God had given him, God would grant to the church. That the oneness that exists between the Son and the Father would be replicated in the church. And that the result of this unity in the church would be to be an open door and a, a candle for the world to draw them to Christ. That they may be one so that the world could know that I love them as, as God loves Him. And thereby draw people to Himself. That's the reason why the church is so important. And that's the reason why we need to discuss things like we do tonight and work through things like we all have to do in our churches because the results are so important and what's at stake is so large. Now it's fine to speak of these things in abstract, but to truly get there, we have to speak in practical terms. So I'll just start by sharing a few situations because this is real. These are things we grapple with. Back when our church was founded in Floyd about 25 years ago, it was sort of a church plant from Gladys where Ivans grew up and Elisa grew up and I grew up. And uh, there was a couple that moved in from, I'm not sure where, Pennsylvania probably, to this new location. Uh, I think, I can't remember their background, but they wanted fellowship, they wanted a church, and they needed some help, so they contacted us, wanted if we would send people over to help support them. And uh, a very unique man this was. He taught math at Virginia Tech, so he was a uh, university professor. And so he, that was his thing, very intelligent. He uh, was very unique in his personality. There was a point that he stopped teaching and started building lawn furniture because he believed the scripture said you work with your hands for your bread. So teaching didn't quite meet that, so he stopped doing that and started building sheds and furniture. His wardrobe never changed. He dressed like I'm dressed every day of the week. Uh, white shirt, top button button, he did even better than me. Black pants. He wore it to church, he wore it to teach math, he wore it to bush hold the pasture. That's every, all I ever saw him in, is that. That's what he did. Uh, he loved order, he loved formality, he loved to do things right. Well, this, our church sent some people over and provided fellowship for a while and decided we need to try to plant a church here. And one man that moved over was a logger and an outdoorsman and very practical and a little bit unorthodox. His views were a little bit uh, interesting. His thoughts about scripture were unique. Uh, not that he was out of bounds necessarily, but he hated dressing up. He hated formality. And this man and this man clashed. They had quite the clash. And there came a point when the man that had come originally, the teacher of Virginia Tech, decided this isn't gonna work and he moved away. So he moved away and left these few families that had come to help support them to plant a church without him. What happened? Well, we have to talk about that. We had a family that attended in Guatemala for a while. They were previously churched, so they knew a lot about Scripture. Uh, the wife and daughter wore this long, flowing veil. They dressed modestly. They had some very strong views. Um, no birthday celebrations, because the only birthdays celebrated in the Bible were Pharaoh's birthday and Herod's birthday, and neither of them ended up well. So they said no birthdays. Uh, no Christmas celebrations. Um, 
and they wouldn't participate in anything about that. And so we asked them to make a few changes to be able to you know, join our fellowship and support there. And, and they stuck to the original thinking. They said, we can't bend. We've come to these conclusions. And therefore, if, if you're not going to change to accept our thinking, then we'll have to just go somewhere else. And the last I knew, they were fellowshipping by themselves somewhere. What happened? We had a family move into our home area a few years ago there, and their previous experience of the Mennonite church was very disappointing to them. They thought this was a much better place. They came over there, and they, uh, they wanted to plug in. They wanted to try to serve there. He was from the military. She was from a different background. They, uh, they were very sensitive. They easily felt rejection. They had feelers out. They could feel things that maybe shouldn't have been felt and very private, hard to open up. They would, would sort of hold people at a bit of a distance or anything having to do with accountability or opening themselves up for deeper uh, engagement was difficult. And there were some hurts there and they stopped coming. They still live in the community. There's no, no church they go to. And I'm sure to these experiences you could add more. There's many people that have come into situations and found it hard. There's many churches that haven't known how to grapple with with people coming in. The problem here in these situations was not that these people didn't love the Lord. It was not that they um, didn't want church to work. But they found it hard to blend. They found it hard to embrace. They found it hard to just somehow lay aside. Maybe the church found it hard to know how to, to bring people in and how to mesh well and how to understand them. And there's something about our view of church that makes this difficult. If our view of church was simply, you come, you worship, you listen, you go home, and that's it, it wouldn't be hard. We could just do that, and we could have a full church if that's all it was. But if we have a vision of discipleship and unity and brotherhood, this raises the stakes a little bit and raises the level of commitment that's required and the level of unity and the level of risk that's required of people. And uh, that's why sometimes people struggle with what we have and what we offer. And so a few years ago at home, and I just remember this a couple of days ago, I was asked to share a topic in our home congregation, um, blending our pasts, our culture, and our personalities in a Christ-like way. And so this is the diagram I put on the board for them. So you have this, and you have this, and you have this. And then you have, I'm not going to try to draw one, but I'll just put it like this. This is the blender. And then you have this. Whatever outcome you have. So you have these things. And when we come together in a congregation, we bring things with us. There's, there's things that are unique to each of us that we brought along with us, and we're, we're here. And um, These are the ingredients that all of us bring together. And here's a process that happens as we work together and talk together and have men's meetings and discuss issues and work through discipline reviews and talk about subjects and think about doctrine. And this give and take this accountability, this approaching each other, all of this is, is this. And that's not easy, but it's that. But something comes out of that. And hopefully what comes out is a positive and a good result of that process. What happens is we go from individuality to a, a shared identity. Not that we lose who we are, but we somehow blend together in a way that creates church. Uh, we go from personal distinction to a group identity. Sometimes it's difficult to think that I need any blending at all because I'm, I'm blended already. I'm pretty much in the middle. It's sort of like the southern girl that was with this northerner that made some comment about her accent. She said, I ain't got no accent. Y'all do. And uh, that's sort of how we feel sometimes. It's, it's y'all that have the problem. If you were just be like me, it'd be all right. So, if you have strawberries and bananas and watermelon and cantaloupe, they're all okay by themselves. 
nothing wrong with them, but you never get a smoothie until you put these things together and blend them up a while and then what comes out comes out. You add some milk and some sugar to mix it all the better. And I will suggest that everything that happens in the blender, if it doesn't happen in the context of the Holy Spirit's presence and the mindset of Christ and the, the humility of mind that is part of this whole subject, it will just be a hard and, and messy thing. But with that calming and holy influence, what happens there can be a good thing, even if it's not easy all the time. What happens to the individual after we get into this? Well, if you taste the smoothie, you taste the strawberry, but you don't just taste it by itself. It's the group. You know, Paul told Timothy, be an example of the believers in word, in charity, in spirit, in faith, in purity. Now, what did he mean by that? You could say, Paul was telling Timothy, you go back and be an example to the believers of all these things. Or you could say, you be a sample of the believers you're with, of this church. If you're away from them and people experience your life, you will be giving them a snapshot of the whole. And so there's that, that side of it. Um, you taste the smoothie, there's a little bit of Timothy in that. You look at Timothy, there's some smoothie in that. There's this, this blending that happens. And whatever we mean by church should be a blend of what each member contributes. It doesn't destroy the individual. We never need to consider that the individual is, is non-existent. But something has to happen or else all we will be is like a glass jar full of marbles. There's no cohesion there except for what's around it. There must be cohesion happening in the midst. They must have some melting and some melting there in, in relationships to be built. Over on this side, you have imbalances. And these personalities that all of us bring, uh, we have some strong points, and that's good. But right along with our strengths come some weaknesses. We tend to be overbalanced one way or deficient over here. And that's what we bring into it. But it's the joining together that helps balance those things out. Over here, we have a much fuller perspective of what the body of Christ is meant to be. See, one person is never an accurate representation of the body of Christ. It takes at least two or three, Jesus said, and there I will be in the midst. And that sense of unity is what creates the church. It's a relationship. My relationship with Christ, that's the most important thing. And then my relationship with you, and that's when church happens. We can't do without either of those relationships if we expect a representation of Jesus Christ as a body. Now, what do we want to come out on this side? What is our goal? I'd like to read a verse here in 1 Corinthians 1, 10 and 11. This is what Paul is writing to the Corinthians. Now I beseech you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you speak the same thing and that there be no divisions among you and that you be perfectly joined together in the same mind and in the same judgment. For it has been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, that there are contentions among you. And uh, what we want from this process is a sense of unity in which even though we wouldn't all see it the same way or agree on every point, we're all on the same page. We're all heading the same direction. We all have a similar same vision. That's what we need. There's, there's a lot of damage that can happen when in a congregation there is an obvious distance or gap between what this person is saying, what that person is saying, that's especially bad in a ministry team when there's obvious light between the two. And I think the devil can take advantage of that. And in this blending process, sometimes things happen that aren't pleasant. Like we sit around in members' meetings and say things. and Maybe we hurt each other's feelings sometimes and we speak honestly. But that's part of this process of, of learning to know each other and blending together. And when we leave here, uh, the goal is to speak honorably of each other, to speak the same narrative of things. This is how we want to do as a church. This is the direction we want to go as a church. That's the concept I see here. No divisions, no splits. Uh, we need to guard our relationships best we can. We need to seek to agree on things best we can. Now, we have to be careful about this there are some disagreements 
in which I feel one way and you feel another way, it's okay for me to say, I prefer to lay down my disagreement in preference of unity with my brother than to fight this thing to a conclusion. Because I destroy more by doing that than what I gain by sticking up for my preference. There has to be red lines. We have to choose those red lines carefully. At what point am I willing to separate and uh, break with this group because I feel that where they're at and where they're going is unhealthy for me and unscriptural. Those, those points have to be there, but hopefully we can stay well within those lines and not face those things. 2 Corinthians 13, 11, be, be perfect, be of good comfort, be of one mind, live in peace, and the God of love and peace shall be with you. Live in peace. This environment of forbearance and forgiveness this environment of trust. So many times when feelings get hurt, trust is eroded and we have to work on building that back. An attitude of maturity. Uh, Philippians 3.16, Nevertheless, we're into, we've already attained, let us walk by the same rule. Let us mind the same thing. This walking by the same rule is almost like marching in military formation. That's the attitude that this, this term portrays. Um, by the same measuring rod. And this whole thing of standards is a fraught subject. I know it is in many churches. Um, I believe they have strong benefits. I believe that to come to an agreement of a, as a church, the benefit is not only in the end result, but the process by which we got there. When we discuss things and agree that this is a good place to be, the whole process of giving and taking and thinking together is part of the blender. Your thinking influences me uh, my thinking contributes to the whole, and in the end, we come up with something we can all agree to. That's, that's a good process. And I hope we experience that together. And there's other things that we could find as well. But this is the goal, the outworking of this process. You know, every church wants that. If we would put up here the, all these benefits that Paul says we should have in our church, the unity, the uh, one mind, the same rule, that's all great. We would say, yes, that'd be great. I wish I could find that. But... It comes at a cost. This is the price of it. That's, that's what we have to come through to get there. And that takes commitment and it takes a willingness to, to blend these things together and understand our, ourselves. Now, these things that I put up here on the board are not spiritual issues. I don't think. Now, this is not an exclusive list. There's doctrinal questions. There's relational questions. There's many other things, but these are a few things. And uh, there are things that are probably bigger than these, but these are a few things. And these are things that we don't choose ourselves. None of us got to 35 years old and said, well, I want to choose which of these things, what, what these things would be like for me. We don't do that. We grow into them. We receive them. We got them from somewhere. And, and sometimes we're blind to these things. It's not my accent. It's yours. And... Uh, we just can't see it. And so, you know, part of this process that we go through in church, it's good for the church, but it's good for me. Because, you know, when I come along with blind spots, I can't see myself as well as you can. And part of this process of give and take, yes, it helps build a strong brotherhood, but it helps me understand what God sees in me that I hadn't noticed before. And so that's, it's good for that. But this first one, the, the past that we bring into church very much influences how I respond to it. Um, and there's many things that influence that, but I'm thinking more of the kind of spiritual past that I have. Uh, the way I was raised, the way the, the church experience I had, all these things are important. And th this thing affects us in two ways. The, the one thing that my past does for me is imprint upon me a certain aspect of that that I don't even recognize, like an invisible imprint that goes with me. And so that's one part. But the other thing is, my past might cause me to react to it. And so not only I carry the imprint of what it gave me, but I also carry the reaction to it that I feel. And so we have two things going on. Um, you might have seen this already, but if a young person is raised in a difficult home situation, and they want to do life better than their dad did or their mom did, they might go out of that home saying, I will never be like my dad. I will do everything I can to avoid that. And then they start doing things that are just, just like he did it. 
because in a sense they're reacting to it, but they carry this imprint with them and maybe don't even recognize it and it influences what they take forward in life. Even this, these things are in conflict. I met a minister from another church one time and they were uh, grappling with, most of their congregation left a very conservative church and were trying to do church in a different way. And they were grappling with things like standards and with uh, administrative authority and they, they were re- reacting to that and they would say, you know, let's not have standards, let's just have understandings. Let's work with things in a different way. And uh, they, were, they were trying to get away from the tight control and the rigidity and things that they felt they'd come from. And a brother that knew them fairly well told me later, he said, uh, these brethren still think like Eastern, they just don't know it. Uh, they, they're carrying the reaction and they're carrying the imprint at the same time because that's how they grew up, that's at the new church, that's how they understood it. And uh, they're taking both. And we need to have grace for that. So even though the reaction and the imprint might be in conflict, both are influences we bring with us without meaning to and without maybe being able to help it. None of us are destined to repeat the mistakes that somebody else made. We need to be clear on that point. We are not doomed to just live in a cycle, generation after generation. That's, that's not the case. We can see where our parents and grandparents went wrong. We can make different choices. But as we come together with these paths, we need to at least recognize that maybe it is that I'm bringing some of this with me and maybe my brethren have to help me through it. And, and that's why we need to understand each other's stories. Someone gave us a good idea at home. We haven't done it yet, but I think it'd be a good idea. Just to take some Wednesday evening services and just have the different families just share their story, where they came from, what about church life influenced them, uh, how they feel about certain things and what made them think this way. Just to help understand what we have here in our, in our group. That was an interesting idea. So it just helps us understand each other. And there's different paths that can, we can bring with us. You know, some people bring with them this perfect church path. I put that in quotes. Um, you look back at your church life and say, well, I really have no complaints. Um, no church problems. Church worked well. Uh, never really pushed against the standards. I never had an issue with the leadership. Uh, there's no sting in my church experience. And I, if you have that, praise the Lord. Uh, hope you can repeat that. I guess if you have that, I don't know why you moved here or why you moved to our church because uh, churches like that might be hard to find. But if you come with that view that you wholeheartedly recommend your church experience, you might be tempted to say, uh, do it like we did it. This, this is the model that worked. Repeat it. I don't know why you guys aren't you know, look into what I know about church. Um, and so we tend to have this conservationist position. Let's not rock the boat because it worked. Let's not change it. There's some that have a very different view of church because they came from a very difficult past. Some have learned that ministry can be very uncaring and very distant. Authority can be very um, mishandled. Some people learn to fear that. Some people learn that standards are simply for outward show, but in private, you're welcome to break them all you wish. Um, some people learn that brotherhood voice doesn't really mean anything. You can't really trust other people. And then, then you come to a church like this, and you bring with you this, this mistrust, this feeling that, you know, I, I have to walk carefully. The ministry might pounce. I need to... Uh, Standards scare me because they're always a wrong measurement of spirituality. Um, being transparent with brethren makes me feel too vulnerable. Therefore, I'll only peel the skin off the onion and won't take the first level off, much next to the second. Uh, we, we tend to live like that. We, we tend to show ourselves whole except for certain people and we can sort of... And so it's hard to do that in church sometimes. And the tendency when we bring with us a past like that is to be reactionary. So we come and react against, and some of the things we would stand for and do is, is not a, a positive position, but a reactionary one, so we have to just be aware of that. We can't change the past, but by working with a brotherhood, hopefully we can understand it and, uh, and work through it. Some come from a conservative past. Some were always taught certain things, 
were right and wrong, and they always taught that to their children. This is how you do it. This is how you don't do it. You wouldn't go here. You wouldn't wear that. And then you come to a church where the standards are different. The expectations are not the same. And people that come from that kind of past into a setting like that face a bit of a dilemma. One dilemma they might face is a quandary of conscience that it just feels wrong to be lax in this area that's now maybe acceptable. And how can I turn around and tell my children it's okay after all these years of telling them it's not? And how do we work with that? And along with that can be a danger in if we decide to let this go, then where do we stop? And so we've seen people do that. They move into the church. They finally get to the point of relaxing what they always held. And then it's like, if that doesn't matter, then why does this matter? And if this doesn't matter, then why does that not matter? And it can be a problem. Some come from the other direction. Some come from a mainstream past, the evangelical church, the mega church or whatever. And I want to tell you that's refreshing when that happens. And every church needs a few like that. We have a few at home. And I deeply appreciate the perspective they bring. We have a brother from Baptist background. We have a brother, that, our sister that was divorced, married to a divorced man, and they were separated. And now she's serving there. And so, but to hear that kind of attitude toward the church they've chosen to join. Have you ever heard of Harry Argo? Uh, he's a guy from way back east, so he probably hasn't been around much, but he was from military past. He studied technology to, to develop simulation for training soldiers, and then he went back to college to study the ill effects that technology has on the brain. And now he has joined the Mennonite Church, and he goes around teaching about technology, and along with what he teaches about technology, he speaks very highly of a conservative lifestyle and the, the positions of brotherhood that he has found. And it is refreshing to hear that because so often we are so self-critical. We look at ourselves and say, oh, we have it all wrong, and oh, we just need to learn from these. And he's coming in and saying, no, you don't. You have something that I never found out there. Keep it. Don't lose it. And, uh, and he understands there's problems, and he's past the honeymoon stage enough to know that our churches aren't perfect. But um, it's the best thing when there's people from our group that grew up with these values and this, these positions and are looking that there's better things out there and want to go that direction to meet one of these people that's coming this way, just to meet them. We have a sister in our church that was married about four times and has a, just a past that is not good. And she will talk to the young people and say, I've been out there. I know what it's like. There, there's nothing out there you want. You really don't want to try. It's a mess out there. Sometimes they don't take it from me, but they need to hear it from her. But sometimes when people come in from that background into a more conservative setting, the tendency for some is to seek after conservatism as, as an end in itself. And so if counsel is good, then maybe pilgrim is better, maybe Amish is better yet, and just this path toward being the, the you know, whatever. And they soon realize that spirituality is not in the culture as much as it is in a dedication and a love for the Lord Jesus Christ. But I say all that to say, this is what we bring with us. And so as we come into a group, we have to grapple with that. And we need to be open about that and simply say, this is who I am, this is where I came from, this is what I struggle with, and just say, what can we do to help me out, and what can I do to help you out? That's the blender, just getting ourselves in this and working with it together. Our culture. Our culture uh, makes a difference. What we emphasize is important. I don't know where you all come from. I was thinking back over our little group. We had some from Amish. We had some from... Baptist, we had some from Midwest, we had some from the world, we had some from Gladys, we had so quite a mix. We haven't done it all the all the best. But this cultural thing we bring along, just certain understanding of what's important. Um, and there's many things we could mention. You know, down south, you see fancy cars sitting in front of rundown houses. We might think the opposite. 
I don't mind driving a, a rusty old pickup truck, but I'd rather have the house fixed up. You know, we might just think different. Um, we grow our own food sometimes. Not everybody does. We're hearing a story of a lady in Harrisonburg who joined some church up there, and she was a dedicated Christian lady, but her church sisters called and said, hey, have you gotten your garden planted yet? Garden? Uh, no. Do you plant gardens? And, yeah, you need to plant a garden. So she thought, well, maybe a flower garden or something. And she looked out the window, and here's these two ladies plowing up her yard to plant vegetables, of all things. She didn't want to plant vegetables. Uh, you go to the store for your vegetables. You don't need to plant vegetables to be a Christian, but that's just a cultural thing that they had to come to grips with. How to interpret body language, relationships, our comfort level. You know, some cultures are very honest with their questions. They ask things that people would just cringe to answer. In some places that's okay, in some places it's just not. In the same church. Like, how many pounds did you gain over Christmas? Well, how many more are you planning to have? Um, some people shut down. They just aren't that way. So just understand those things. We're layered. We, uh, we need to understand how to best gently open up. There are certain terms we use that might just sound different to some people than others. When we say kingdom, we have a certain concept. But if you would say kingdom or a Jehovah's Witness would say kingdom, they might have a totally different view on what that word means. Um, if we talk about church discipline, it might send a totally different message depending who hears it because of what their background is. When I hear the concept ministry team or bishop, when I hear the word bishop, I think of our bishop kneeling on the floor beside a little child drawing a bug on the back of their hand. That's what he does every, every Sunday after church. Nothing threatening about that. Some people hear the word bishop like this, this person, this eminence, this uh, scary whatever. I've never had that experience. Maybe others have. You hear the word men's meeting. We have good men's meetings. You can talk about things and discuss things in an open way and love each other afterwards. One person told me their brother's meeting is a more beat-up-the-brother meeting because they drag out the issues and discuss the problem and talk about the man. And it's hard. So we bring these understandings with us and we understand the differences. Our personalities. All of us have one. Your personality is not defined by a single act. It's defined by a series and pattern of behavior. And so it's just who we are. It's how we are wired and operate. And uh, some people are just people magnets. They're outgoing and magnetic, and people are just sort of drawn to them, and they are friendly. Some people just aren't. They seem prickly. They seem negative. They seem distant. And uh, an Eeyore can't be a tigger no matter how hard he tries. But there's a, a wonderful surprise about personality. Sometimes I think that God wraps good gifts in unusual packages. And by getting to know people a little deeper, a little better, you can find strengths and gifts there that you, you'd never notice on the surface. Or values there that, that come out of that personality that is, is just unique. Uh, I knew an Eeyore of a man once who was pessimistic and peppery and gloomy all the time. And he was just the way he was. But I learned to really appreciate him. He was solid. He might complain a little bit, but he was dependable. He was caring, willing, a valuable asset. Uh, I learned to enjoy him, his, his Eeyore-ish sense of humor. Uh, I clashed one time with someone. I sensed he was controlling. He was a little headstrong. He was a little belligerent. I thought he was. And so I, he, was, he was a natural leader with some blind spots. But the more I got to know him, I could see there the, the uh, insight that he had, the vision he could see around corners and figure things out. And I learned to appreciate that about him because he had gifts I didn't have. So somehow to, to be able to be okay with some of the surface things, the personality things, blend them together, appreciate the differences, learn from each other. We have prophetic types. You know, people that are black and white, prophetic type people often don't do well with relationships. They sometimes struggle to get along with people. But we need people like that. Sometimes we would love a church full of merciful people. You know what happens in a church full of merciful people? They can just be merciful right into oblivion. They can be merciful all the way to the edge of the cliff. And we need some people to stand up and say, hey, there's an issue we need to talk about. We have some things going on at home right now. 
And there's at least one or two sort of black and white type people. And it seems like all the questions come from them. And they said, well, I thought we discussed this and decided so-and-so. And such and such happened and just deflated my spirit. And there's a limit to that. You can't just complain your way through life, I agree. But the fact is, after we work through this a while, there's good that comes out of it. And so we need that type, even if uh, it's difficult sometimes. We need the merciful type. We need all types, because there's good wrapped up in that. But we need to understand that along with my strengths come my weaknesses. They always come packaged together. And the outflow of one is the other. It's like they go together. That's why we need this. To get in there and so that your strengths can balance my weaknesses, your insights can balance my blind spots. And that's when brotherhood can flow and that's when church can work. Unless we blend, we will clash. Let's not clash, let's blend. Now it's interesting to study some of the conflicts in the early church. I don't want to take a lot of time with this, but I think it's insightful to look at this because I want to answer two questions here. Number one, which, which of these unblended elements caused these conflicts? And is there something deeper still that we need to be aware of and deal with? I think there is. So the first conflict, we're not going to read a verse here, but the first conflict was in Acts 6. That's when the Greeks spoke up and said, our widows aren't being taken care of. You Jews are getting everything and we're being overlooked. What are you going to do about this? Now, there was Hellenists. This was a church more diverse than our church. There was Greeks, Jewish Greeks, and there was Jews. And uh, the Greeks' accusation was racial preference. And so the, uh, the apostles, which were Jews, got together, called the multitude and said, there is an issue here. There was no defensiveness in that. And we need to learn that. When there's a brother in the church that stands up and makes an accusation of something not being right, the worst thing that we can do as a church or as leaders is to get defensive and say, you sit down because you're out of place and you're accusing falsely. And think through it, work through it, try to understand it. And... Uh, they said there is a problem here. Our job is to preach and to pray. Let's find somebody else to de- delegate this to. It was interesting to me, they trusted this congregation enough to say, you go pick seven men full of the Holy Ghost and good report, bring them back to us, and we will put upon them this charge. When they brought back these seven men, they have the names right there in Acts 6. Most of these were Greek names, not Jewish names, which says something. This multitude chose... Greeks to oversee the Greek problem. And the whole multitude blessed that, and the, the apostles anointed that, and uh, it seemed like the church was very blessed through that process. What caused the clash? What about this was the clashing element? Probably culture. I don't know what it was. At best, it was carelessness. At worst, it was an oversight or lack of integrity. Probably wasn't that. But how was it settled so peaceably and so well? I think it was settled well because that fourth thing that I've not written up here yet was missing. You don't see it in this passage. There's another one in Acts 15, 39. And the contention, it says, was so sharp between them that they departed asunder one from the other, and so Barnabas took Mark and sailed into Cyprus. So Barnabas wanted John Mark to go along. Paul said, no way. And the contention was so sharp that they did what a lot of people do today. They just said, okay. You go your way, I'll go mine. And we'll just live that way. And they did. What was the underlying cause there? Well, I think personality had a lot to do with it. That clash was probably personality. The same mercy and the same concern and optimism that took Barnabas to find Saul after his conversion and bring him back to the Gentiles, or the, the, sorry, the, the apostles, was the same personality that wanted to give John Mark a second chance. But Paul's personality, the same strength of character, the visionary view, the, the instant decision-making that evangelized Asia, was not willing. He said, nope, we've given him a chance. No way, he'll do it again. And that's what it took. They couldn't see eye to eye. They split. So there was maybe personality. Maybe there was something deeper in that. But here's a third dissension that I believe reveals that deeper thing. In 1 Corinthians 1.11, For it hath been declared unto me of you, my brethren, by them which are of the house of Chloe, 
that there are contentions among you. And in chapter 3, verse 1, And I, brethren, could not speak unto you as spiritual, but as unto carnal, as even unto babes in Christ. For ye are yet carnal, for whereas there is yet among you envying and strife and divisions, are ye not carnal and walk as men? That's the problem. Who knows how it started? Personality, culture, what they brought in the church in their past, maybe other things, doctrinal things. What was really at the root was an uncrucified carnality. That was the real problem. I would suggest tonight that there is no past and no culture and no personality that cannot be blended where carnality is absent. But if carnality is in that mix, this unwillingness to bend this uncrucified self-expression and selfishness, uh, that's where strife and contention can just continue without end. Knowing these things can help. It helps us understand each other. But often it's good to self-assess and simply say, in my struggle to blend with this brotherhood, is there something in here that is yet carnal? And maybe I even ask other people to help me see it. Now, I feel like we spent a lot of time defining the issue and not solving the problem. I'd like to say a couple of things here yet. The blender has been working in our church in the last months and years since COVID started. We have sat through many members' meetings, men's meetings, and we sit there and discuss an issue, and at the end, our bishop will say, I want to go around the circle and ask each of you to express yourself on the issue. There's a few people that would tend to speak up more and few that would tend to be silent, but it's good to just let each one say what he thinks personally without the, uh, yeah, free of, an, free of peer pressure as best we can. And time and again, after doing that, we come to a consensus and say, here's something we can support. And that's a good outcome. It's not always easy to get there. We're starting to work through our statement of faith and practice. That's going to be a long job. And we've had some interesting discussions. But I think good things are happening. But as we go through this process, there's a few things that we need to think about and do. Number one, we must bring into this blender, this process, the mind of Christ without which no blending can happen. In Philippians 2, 3, let nothing be done through strife and vain glory, but in lowliness of mind, let each esteem other better than themselves. Can you imagine what would happen in here if in this process there is no strife, no carnal clashing, and no vain glory, in other words, no pride, no lifting myself up, and no feeling hurt because I wasn't taken into account, and no self-protection. Can you imagine the beauty that would come out of that? No strife and no vain glory. We're probably not there yet. And then it says in verse 5, Let this mind be in you which was also in Christ Jesus. Then it goes through what Jesus was. His loneliness of mind, his humility of heart. I think if we could do that, most of our problems about this would find a solution. I really think it would. It might still be difficult, but at least there would be a way forward. You see, we struggle sometimes with a superior attitude and an inferior attitude. Sometimes we have the core group, maybe the ones that got here first, maybe the ones that have the most background, they have the most recent comers. And I'll just suggest that there, there's no blending of a superior attitude that doesn't lend itself to that. But having an inferior attitude toward this group has the same consequence. You can't fully blend until we recognize that we are here on equal footing before the Lord to do our best for, the, for God and for the kingdom and simply lay down whatever anxieties or aloofness or pride we might struggle with. So keep that mindset, this mind of Christ. I must give myself to be blended. That's one thing we need to think about. I must learn to get to know others and let them get to know me. There was a young lady in Guatemala one time that asked me to get her a Bible. And so I went and chose one for her and I wasn't quite sure if it was the right thing I gave it to her and used an expression that I thought was a very innocent expression to say, you know, if you want me to go get you another one, I'll be glad to take this back and get you another one. But somehow the term I used in my lack of Spanish skills was offensive. And she went away with a strange look. She came back a few days later and said, uh, 
this is what you said to me. Did you really mean that? Is that what I heard you say? Because that's an offensive thing to say in Spanish. And I had to quickly humble my heart and say, you know, I did wrong. I, I did something I shouldn't have done. And we were able to let that go. And, and uh, that was important to do as a way of letting her get to know me and me to her. And it was a good interaction. One time after church, uh, my co, we lived just down the street from the church. So after service was over, we'd walk down home when we were done. And my co-pastor came up to me after a few months and said, you know, you, you go home pretty quick after church. You need to stay around more. The people here need to get to know you better. And so stay a little longer. And so we did. We tried to stay. That's where we learned the habit of being the last ones to leave, I guess. We can't blend from a distance. We have to let people get to know us, and we get to know them. We need to discern between core principles and non-essentials. Uh, it's never good to shed principles for the sake of blending. We have to realize that. We have to do our church choosing well before we decide where we're going to commit to. There's a certain amount of tearing down and rebuilding that will have to take place in this blending process. We need to be aware of that. We need to be willing to take on this larger identity, even though it costs me a little bit myself. Some come to a church with this temptation. I'm here to make this group a better place. Therefore, let's start a prayer meeting. Let's try a ministry. Let's drum up some stuff for this. And they try to flurry around a little bit. And then if that doesn't work, they get upset and go somewhere else. Um, we need to bless our church. That's what we're called to do. But we need to understand that first we must blend and become one with before we try to change and alter and pull and stretch and impose upon the group. Blending is about becoming before it's about influencing. If you remember that. Invite others to do it. Invite others to blend. If we want a church where people are, are welcome and where they can open up and be part of us and expose them their hearts, it needs to be a safe place for them to do it. You know one of the things that will shut down people quicker than anything else? If they come up to you and, and, and finally are able to open themselves up and share something of deep importance in their heart. And a week later, they hear somebody else discussing what you said. That will be, whoosh, the doors will go shut, and they will probably not risk doing it again. We need to be a safe place. And so blending happens when others' best interest is in mind. That's important to keep in mind. Somebody used this term recently. I think it's an important thing to remember. We need to walk with God and live with people at the same time. So we need to maintain the relationship we talked about last night. At the same time, we need to be open to welcoming others into our experience. Now, I struggle with that. I tend to be more a little bit of a loner and just be fine out in a canoe somewhere. Or um, We might have to work on that. But to invite people into our life to share life with them. Some people do very well at that spending time doing normal things together to build relationships, going through hard things together, that's important. Working toward common goals is important. We can't hope to keep a full level of isolation and privacy and expect to blend well as a church. Somehow some of that needs to, to give for the sake of, of other people. Now, we never lose our identity fully and we need some of our space but but here's one key Romans 15 7 wherefore receive you one another as Christ also received us to the glory of God and it's okay if not everybody that joins our church plants garden and cans peaches and freezes peas and eats popcorn on Sundays uh, those are peripheral things that's not the core thing we need to Specifically look at what are the essential elements that make church church and stick with those. I like the conclusion to this story in Acts 4.32. And the multitude of them which believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither said any of them that all of the things which he possessed was his own, but they had all things common. And with great power gave the apostles witness of the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. I think that the blender was working. And the outcome of that was great power and great grace upon that congregation. See, the blessing of blending is unity. 
And the blessing of unity is that the power of God rests on that church. And the blessing of the presence of God in the church is an open door to the world that invites it into it and shows them who God is and how this works. And that doesn't happen overnight. It doesn't happen easily. Sometimes it happens in painful places. But it's worth striving for. And I think that's what glorifies God. That's what I want to share tonight. May God bless you as we strive together for this, you and your church and me and mine. And may God bless that process. Let's stand together for closing prayer. Father, we thank you for the plan of salvation that brings us each into a relationship with Christ. We thank you especially for the, the healing and relationships of the ones around us and the bringing us into a, a common unity together as a body. We pray that all the graces and gifts of the Holy Spirit could rest in this congregation and function here and draw this group together in a real and, and living way. Where there's hurts, Lord, let them be healed. Where there's struggles, Lord, let there be victory. Where there's difficulties overcome, Lord, show a way forward. And do a great work that we cannot do and just bless this church, Lord. Make it all that you want it to be. Show this community what the body of Christ is like. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.